evening, Undone. It's great to have the opportunity to speak to you again here tonight. Obviously, I'm doing so from my living room still. Um, it's just the way things are at the moment. It's becoming the new normal. Um, but I'm still excited to have the opportunity to speak again in this series, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. So we're taking the next step in this series this week, and we're going to be looking at what um, you could say is the biggest shift that takes place in the story of God. And it's the shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we're going to be, in doing that, exploring one of the first stories that we see actually take place in the New Testament. And that's commonly known as the Christmas story. And if you're anything like me, when I first um, got this subject next to the date that I would be speaking about it, um, it kind of felt a bit weird um, because when we don't talk about this outside of the December season, typically, um, unless maybe like in Christmas in July, that kind of thing. But we missed both those markers. So it feels a little bit strange to um, why we're going to be talking about it here. But I actually think it offers us a unique opportunity um, and a really cool opportunity to look at the story for what it is without getting distracted um, by the, the season and the buzz that often comes with the December period. So we're going to be taking a look at it and in doing so hopefully highlighting some of the truth that we see in this story, maybe in a way that we haven't um, seen it before. So I'd love to get started in, um, by looking at the Christmas story as we read it in Luke chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible wherever you are, I'd encourage you, um, grab that, turn to Luke chapter 2 for me, and we'll, we'll get into it. So it starts by saying in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." Alright, so here we have um, what, what you could probably pretty confidently say is the most famous story in all of history. It's really interesting because whether you grew up in a church or you've never st stepped foot in a church, you've heard the story. Like you've heard at least parts of the story. And I think that because we're so familiar with it, um, that can actually cause us to maybe miss the significance sometimes of the story. So I really um, like that we've got the privilege to take a look at this story now and to try and maybe understand some of the things that it reveals to us about God. So I really want to take a look at two truths that we see in this story um, that are really important to understanding God. And the first truth is this. The first is that it reveals a God who is faithful to deliver on his promise. It reveals a God who is faithful to deliver on his promise. Because the reality is that while many of us probably think the Christmas story starts here in Luke chapter 2, I would say it starts a whole lot sooner than that, way back in Genesis. And we've looked at this throughout the series a little bit already. We've explored um, the creation story um, earlier in the series, where God, we know He created the earth, 
and then he created man. And then in chapter 3, we see a bit of a turn of events where man sins against God, and we see it uh, as listed as the fall. And I want to explore that for a little bit here, because I would say in chapter 3 of Genesis, the chapter of the fall, that's the moment where we see the Christmas story first set into motion. And we see it set into motion through the sentencing of a curse, interestingly enough. Because what happens is before God lists to Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin, the things that they will now have to live in as a result of the broken world, he actually gives them good news. He gives them hope. And this is um, what's almost universally become known by theologians now as the proto-evangelion. Proto meaning first and evangelion meaning good news. This is the first good news that we see in all of scripture. And it's found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when I used to hear this um, scripture, I used to hear this verse, I would take it very literally. So it's talking about, um, you know, the serpent and um, enmity that exists between the serpent and humanity. And it's still an enmity that we kind of see today with snakes in that kind of sense. But there's something a lot more significant and deeper that's taking place in this verse. Because if we understand who God is actually talking to, he's talking to Satan. He's talking to the enemy. And what he's saying is he's making a promise that one day he will send someone through Eve who will conquer over Satan once and for all. He's promising that this broken relationship between humanity and, and himself will be restored. And it's interesting because he promises to send that offspring through the same vessel in which sin first entered the world, through a woman. And we start to see the parallel to the Christmas story. We start to see that this started a lot sooner than we might first think. And I wonder if... If Adam and Eve lived in expectation of that promise, you know, when they first had their children, Cain and Abel, whether maybe there was a hope that one of them was the promised offspring. And we, it's revealed quite quickly that that wasn't the case. Uh, for those who know the story, you know, Cain, he killed Abel and then Cain was banished. And it's like the hope of that, that promise was lost. And then in Genesis 4, chapter 25, we see that that hope is kind of, it comes back where it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. But she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So what we see here is that this hope is rising up in Eve again, that maybe this is the promise from God that will restore our relationship with him and it's revealed that that isn't the case again and we read in the next verse it says to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord so something really significant happens here what we see is the first time in all of scripture where people began to call on the name of the Lord and that took place 
from a, um, from a people who were desiring to see this promise fulfilled that God had made. What we see here is a people for the first time longing and desiring for Christmas, in essence. Longing to see the promise of God fulfilled. And we see this continue into the Old Testament. In every prayer, it seems that we see in the Old Testament, it centers around this idea of God fulfilling his promises. And we see this longing for Christmas continue, prayer after prayer, covenant after covenant, prophet after prophet. We see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament that points back to this promise that God made here in the garden to Adam and Eve. And we see this, this promise is sustained through the story of Noah where if Noah um, wasn't allowed by God's safe passage with his family on the ark, then the promise that God had made would not have been able to be kept. And then we see this promise revisited and reaffirmed in the person of Abraham. And we looked at that earlier in the series, but then we see it reaffirmed again in his son Isaac and then Jacob. And then we see that this promise, it's identified to be in the lineage of David. Again and again, we see this promise all throughout the Old Testament, pointing back to Jesus. And Scripture, it tells us that there's 20 generations from Adam to Abraham, and then there's uh, 14 generations from Abraham through to David, and then there's 28 generations from David to the birth of Jesus. So here we have 62 generations in the Old Testament, all longing and desiring for this promised offspring that would restore humanity's broken relationship with God. So Luke chapter 2, as we read before here, the Christmas story, what we can start to see that this isn't just God's gift to humanity, but what we actually see is that this is God delivering on his promise that he promised generations before. It's a celebration of this promise's arrival here on earth. So there's a significance that's taking place here that all of Scripture is being built towards. And it's a revelation here that our God is one who delivers on His promises. He is so faithful. And I think it's a truth that we need to understand in the Christmas story it reveals to us. But there's more truth in the Christmas story as we actually dig a little bit deeper into the narrative itself. So that's what I want to do here. I want to explore it a little bit more because if we're honest, when we look at the Christmas story, it's it's a strange story. It's a weird story. It doesn't really add up. And I think because we're so familiar with it, uh, we kind of lose a bit of that um, kind of understanding and that it just doesn't really fit. So if we were to just for a moment um, forget what we know, pretend that we just had a blank slate, and if we were going to write the script on how the promised Savior of the world is going to enter in and become human, the one that's foretold to be able to, to bring light and hope and restore our broken relationship with God, if, if we're going to write the script on how that's going to take place, I reckon each of us would have written it very differently than how we read it in the Christmas narrative. Because it honestly just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I mean, let's just start with the parents. 
Joseph and Mary. Joseph, a broke carpenter from an insignificant town. And then you have Mary, who's a 15-year-old, probably handmaiden at the time. These two people had no social status whatsoever. And, And that might seem a little bit odd to us, but the only reason it's not completely outright ridiculous to us is because we live in a culture, a society that accepts and understands humility as an important value. Whereas that's not the society they lived in. They lived in an honor-based society. And the interesting thing is the only reason we kind of live in a humility-based society is because of Jesus. It's often traced back to Jesus by historians that his life um, and the example that he lived um, in regards to humility is what inspired um, the society in which we live in today. But what Jesus is being born into here is not that kind of society. It is an honor Based society, and that meant your social status was everything. And what we see is Joseph and Mary had none whatsoever. We see that in the story where they go to the inn and they're refused entry. That doesn't just mean that there wasn't any room for them. In that day and age, that would have meant that every other person in the inn was more important than they were. Because if there was someone of slightly less social status than them, then that person would have been removed and they would have been given their place. That's how society worked at this time. But that didn't happen because what we see is Joseph and Mary were very insignificant people. And what we can start to understand about this story is there's a, there's a power in the ordinariness of what we're reading. And it reflects the kingdom of God. And that's the second truth that I want us to understand about the Christmas story, is it helps us understand the kingdom of God. Because like I said, it might be a little bit strange to us that Jesus would be born into a a family that has no social status. But at that time, in that culture, that was just completely outrageous. That was just not something that could have happened. It was not a reality that could have been true. But it's what we see in the story. And as a result, we see the creator of the universe, the very one who spoke things into existence, being born in a stable and laid in a filthy, stinky manger. And that's just completely a reversal of how we would think things should happen. And yet, it's the perfect reflection of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is often something we think about in the context of Jesus' ministry, where he spoke about it in parables, and he revealed a kingdom where the way of thinking is just so different to the world, and the priorities are so different. But that revelation of the kingdom of God didn't start with Jesus' ministry, but it starts here in the events of his birth. That rather than be born into a palace where, where humanly speaking, it would make sense, he chooses to be born in a stable and laid in a manger, born to a family of no social status whatsoever. And it's a revelation of the priorities of, of God's kingdom, the character of our God, that he is one that is far more um, concerned with humility than power and social status. But this revelation of the kingdom, it continues in the story, and we read it in the next verse. 
uh, in verse 8, where it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, so far in this story, there's really only one element that I think makes sense, and that's the multitude of angels. Okay, We're talking about the promised Savior's birth into this world, multitude of angels saying glory to God. That makes sense. But here we have uh, Joseph and Mary broke peasants from Galilee. That doesn't really add up. And then we have the shepherds. The people that God chooses to bring the news of the arrival of the Messiah to before anyone else. I want to understand a little bit more about the shepherds there. Because in the first century, shepherds were not popular people. Um, the imagery that we see back in the Psalms of the Old Testament about shepherds is very different. You know, In Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. But things have changed quite a lot by uh, this point in history. And... Now they're not very popular and they're almost universally known as thieves. Um, they were said to be unclean. They weren't allowed to worship in the temple with everyone else. Their testimony in a court of law was just considered invalid. They were universally considered as just the social outcast. And that was for a number of different reasons, but there was no clearer picture at the time of, of a sinner, of a thief, than that of a shepherd. And yet, this is, the, this is the group of people that God chooses to appear to. And what God is doing here is actually something quite common that took place at this time at the birth of the first son. Um, when a first son was born, often families would uh, employ what they would call a herald to go and take the news to the community because it was a really significant event because it symbolized that your lineage was intact that your legacy would now be carried to the, to the next generation. So it was a really important uh, event. And the more money, the more influence you had, the, the greater the heralding would be, the, the greater this news could, um, could be and the further it could be carried. But here we have Joseph and Mary who are miles from their own town. Um, they don't have any money, so there's no way for them to herald the news of their firstborn. Son, so what we see take place is God heralds the news of the arrival of Jesus. And he does it just as you'd expect God to do it. He does it with an army of angels, but he doesn't do it to whom you'd expect he would do it. He doesn't do it to the rich and the influential. He doesn't do it to the religious. He does it to the clearest picture we have of a sinner, of an outcast. He does it to the shepherds. I think this is a reflection, really, of Jesus' ministry later on in his life, where he became known as the one who would sit and eat with the sinner, so much so that he would get ridiculed for this. 
And what we see is this isn't just a characteristic that's demonstrated through Jesus' life, but God is demonstrating this characteristic here in the events of his birth. He is making it absolutely clear who Jesus came for. He came for the sinner. He came for the thief. He came for the unclean. And he came to redeem them. I don't think anything about the Christmas story is accidental. But these events, they're highly intentional. And they reveal the character of our God. And they reveal how the economy of his kingdom works. And how differently it works to to the way that we would expect it to work. So when we look at the Christmas story, the two truths that I think we can see in it are, first and foremost, that it shows us a God who delivers on his promises, who is faithful. And in doing so, he gives us confidence that he will deliver on his promise to one day return again and complete the restoration between us and himself. And then secondly, I think the story reveals the nature of his kingdom and his character and how different and unexpected it is to our way of thinking and this world's way of thinking that that really I think the Christmas story is is really so significant and important for us in understanding our God and understanding the fullness of who he 